Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. I'm Doug McCullough from the Lone Star Policy Institute. And I'm Clark Packard from the R Street Institute. Josiah Neely and his wife are welcoming my new child into the world, so he's taking a few weeks off. Today, in his absence, I welcome his colleague, Park, Clark Packard, who's been on the show before. And Clark, uh, take it away. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me back, first of all. Uh, I'd like to welcome our guest, Peter Rao. Uh, Peter is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., where he researches and writes about U.S. foreign policy with a particular focus on Europe and the Middle East. Peter previously served as associate director in the White House Office of Strategic Initiatives during the George W. Bush administration. He was also the director of research in President George W. Bush's office after the presidency, where he helped the 43rd president write his book, uh, Decision Points. Uh, Peter and I met about a year ago on a junket over to Switzerland, uh, and we've been close ever since. Uh, so welcome, Peter. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah. Uh, let me Let me start off. You just returned from the Munich Security Conference, the main confab of national security and foreign policy. Give us your sort of high high level takeaways from what you heard and what you saw in, in Munich this weekend. Well, from one junket with you in Switzerland to the next last weekend in Munich, I think the real high level takeaway that which overshadowed the entire conference was probably close to the outset when Speaker Pelosi gave a bit of a rambling opening uh, uh, comment during the plenary session on parliamentary democracy, but then very quickly echoed the White House's line on 5G Huawei and uh, the new telecoms build out in Europe. She was asked in a follow-up whether or not there's any difference between her and the Trump administration on this, and she said, essentially, no, there's no daylight. And I thought that was important because the Europeans, who are skeptical of the Trump administration, by and large respect Speaker Pelosi. And so this isn't the MAGA America first position, but an American position, irrespective of what happens in November. So China and uh, 5G really accompanied the rest of the conference. A lot of the key European officials exiting uh, Munich Security Conference referenced that in their write-ups or their initial reports or their postings on Twitter. And you felt that uh, in the conversations. So how Europe positions itself within the context of a bipolar US-China competition is easily the highlight of uh, the conference and a few other issues quite frankly fell away unfortunately as a result for example uh, the russians together with the iranians and the assad regime are launching a massive ground offensive against the last remaining opposition stronghold idlib province in northern syria there's something like 900,000 displaced people over the past several weeks and uh, when president macron during one of the real highlights of the plenary announced uh, or reinforced what he announced a few weeks and months ago. It's just this new strategic outreach to the Russians. It lived incumbent at all, which I thought was sort of unfortunate. So it really wasn't the operational questions of the day. It was great power competition and what the structure of international relations looks like going forward. Good. Interesting. So I want to ask a, a big picture question. One of the I've been wanting to do a foreign policy show on the Urbane Cowboys for a while, and we've We've done a few topics that are international, but not really from a foreign policy perspective. And since you're here with us, could you talk a little bit about, in general terms and maybe in an almost academic way, talk a little bit about the the Trump foreign policy, maybe personal to Donald Trump, but also the Trump administration. Does it fit with any sort of classic 
foreign policy schools of thought, or is this very much unique to Donald Trump and his more shooting from the hip type of approach? Can you sort of break that down for us and give us a big picture of how does he fit into to sort of the, the traditional views on uh, foreign policy? Well, I don't think that Donald Trump is read into the different schools of foreign policy. I doubt if you asked him, he was sort of a Sun Tzu scholar or had read Clausewitz that he would know either of them. But he definitely has an instinct, I think, which then operationalizes itself through his various advisors and groups within the administration. One of my colleagues, Walter Russell Mead, who's a scholar at Hudson and uh, writes a column for the Wall Street Journal, years ago uh, developed this typology of American foreign policy. And one category are the so-called Jacksonians, going back to Andrew Jackson in the 19th century. And I think that Trump, I would agree with Walter, and uh, it's no real breakthrough analysis, but I, I generally think it's true that he is something of a neo-Jacksonian, which means that, uh, uh, to adapt another kind of phrase from, from, from American past, he's not really out searching for monsters to destroy, but if any monster out there uh, sheds American blood, you can expect a pretty decisive and, and aggressive American foreign policy response. So um, I think the Jacksonians are Americans who are really focused on their own communities, their own individual kind of areas, and um, they can be rallied uh, to strike out and to have an internationalist interventionist foreign policy. But um, but it really takes something, to, I think, to activate and trigger that, that kind of sense of... Um, of action. They're very patriotic. They believe in institutions like the Pentagon, like the military. Um, they're much more skeptical of, I think, unelected concentrations of power. So that would be kind of the other soft power tools of America's image in the world, be it Hollywood, be it the press, be it the Wall Street and other kind of huge, big conglomerates that don't have democratic checks on them every two or four years. So uh, they're very patriotic and um, they're willing to go out. They're not pacifists they're isolationists and go to war even, but it requires really kind of a mobilizing event. And so I think uh, Trump has kind of uh, uh, taken some of that up. One of the challenges I think that Donald Trump has, which is unique to the United States, because across the West we have uh, popular nationalists kind of in his vein, is that he's the president of the world's biggest power. And so there's a tension there because if you're a nationalist or an economic nationalist or a foreign policy nationalist, even isolationist in a country like, say, Austria, it really doesn't matter if you pull back because there are larger organizing powers who can go out and make sure that the West is protected. But when you're the leader of the United States, you have certain responsibilities, you have certain ordering tasks you're really looked to as kind of the leader of the West. And so um, it's difficult, and that's why I think you sometimes see this whiplash or this, this meandering between, on the one hand, nationalism, and the other hand, internationalism, because he has an instinct of being a Jacksonian, he has an instinct of being reserved, but on the other hand, you know, it's tough when you're the president. How do you think that that operationalizes itself? Like, give us an example. Would, would you say the, the sort of killing of General Soleimani in, in Iran, is that, is that sort of a, a good example of, of how he thinks about the world? and? Kind of getting to what you said that if someone is going to shed american blood they can expect a, a pretty serious and su substantial response yeah i think so the Soleimani killing is a great example because in the months leading up to that uh assassination or that targeted attack on Soleimani in baghdad there really was an escalatory dynamic ongoing in the region the iranians had uh, moved up the military ladder um, in a way of trying to break out of the economic sanctions the u.s had put on on Iran. And their thinking was, well, we can provoke militarily because the president isn't going to respond because he's reserved, he's sort of 
pseudo isolationist. And uh, by hitting the uh, various regional allies the US has, including a major oil installation in Saudi Arabia, we can fire up the Europeans who will say, President Trump, get back into the Iran nuclear deal. Look what kind of escalatory dynamic you've loosened by exiting the deal, basically employing the Europeans as defense attorneys of the Iranians. But as soon as they cross that red line uh, in, in, in the case where uh, uh, one of the Iranian-backed militias in Iraq through a mortar attack killed a few Americans, um, and then also, you know, we saw protests at the U.S. Embassy, which had their own dynamic because it reminded Trump of Benghazi and, um, and the takeover of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran during the Iranian, after the Iranian Revolution. That, at that point, Trump enacted, and he didn't act by, you know, pinprick strike against uh, some militia leader. He went straight to the head of the snake and, and basically signaled, if you attack Americans or your, or your allies even attack Americans, we're going to hold you responsible. So that's an example of, of being reserved, of holding back. The Iranians interpreted that as weakness and an unwillingness to enforce certain red lines and reestablish American deterrence in the region. And what did it lead to? Uh, it led to them miscalculating and then uh, Trump, uh, Trump hitting them hard. So, yeah, that's a great example in the security realm of Trump's kind of Jacksonian form. Well, and, and I don't want to sort of repeat the conspiracy theories about deep state and so forth, but how, how different have the various people that have played in, in the State Department, in the Defense Department, uh, both at the senior level and maybe at lower levels, have they really shared this Jacksonian approach, have they sort of, uh, you know, softened this approach and maybe brought in a little bit different perspective? And and part of the reason I'm thinking of that is uh, the situation with Syria, where there was this seemed like a rather um, off the cuff um, com- communication that we we're about to pull troops out of Syria, which became moving troops within Syria, and then quickly a, a strong worded uh, notice to Erdogan that if he did anything to our al- the Kurdish allies, that we would retaliate. And so it seems like there was that he followed his he was in the President Trump was initially following his instincts. But then he kept hearing these voices from probably both within and outside the administration that broaden that perspective perhaps what what do you think that dynamic is well maybe two points to that starting with economic sanctions the reason why the president loves economic sanctions is because it really meets both of those imperatives on the one hand being the president of the united states which isn't just any other country meaning it's a way to coerce an actor it's a way to enforce red lines but on the other hand it doesn't offend his jacksonian constituency because he's not uh, engaging in some neoliberal or uh, interventionist, whatever you want to call it, neoconservative foreign policy crusade abroad, which would be their critique, for example, of the president's critique of um, the war in Iraq or the strikes on Libya and so on and so forth. So economic sanctions is something he, he, he loves to push for. As for his relationship with his own government, I think that one of the weaknesses of the Trump administration is that from the very beginning, uh, that tier of political appointees that separate the White House and the president from the career officials down below has been weakly staffed. And I don't mean that the quality of people has been weak. There are some excellent appointees in the administration, from Elliot Abrams, who runs Venezuela policy, to, say, Wes Mitchell, who was previously the Assistant Secretary of State for Europe. Um, But I I think that entire mid-management level, which really makes corporations and private sector businesses run, they also make uh, government run. And they're especially necessary in this government because the number of 
Jacksonians amongst career form service officers is pretty limited. Um, I would imagine that you could go through whole bureaus of the State Department if you ask them who they voted for. If you found one Trump voter, you'd be breaking up a no-hitter. So it's really important, I think, to have that intermediary level that can uh, both manage up and manage down. And I don't, I don't think that's always been there uh, because there just hasn't been uh, there just hasn't has, hasn't been full staffing. And part of that is it's hard to find staffers because uh, again, uh, the president his personal style is offensive to some um, some classic political pointies in a Republican administration. And on the other hand, there's some people who just don't share his worldview. So uh, that's been a challenge. I do think there are a few heavy hitters who've managed pretty well to show that they really are um, the president's man, the president's point person, and uh, have a pretty good management downwards. Uh, Secretary Pompeo, I think, has done relatively well, much better than the much celebrated uh, General Mattis, who I think um, had the support of his agency, but um, but you, the president, almost like the chairman of a board, being brief on the decisions that you as CEO have taken, rather than um, rather than what probably would have made for a more functioning relationship, getting the president's directive and implementing it. So it's a mixed bag, and I think that that is probably you put your finger on the pulse of the issue. One of the major problems. Do you think that there's much of a a future for this type of Jacksonian approach after Trump? Because, like you said, there's people within the State Department, this isn't their um, their mindset, their, their school of thought. Do you think that, that there's any bench being built, or do you think that once uh, Trump is gone that we're going to see sort of return to more traditional approaches? I suspect that this is probably here to stay, in part because he won a presidential election. As we're recording this, he doesn't look like a bad bet to win a re-election, and so there are going to be lots of people who learned the lessons of Trump and, and seen that there's an opportunity here electorally and that this kind of middle ground between a more interventionist uh, foreign policy and isolationist one might be uh, might be able to carry the day with a lot of voters, which isn't to suggest that people vote on foreign policy alone, but I do think that uh, it has some electoral viability. And we already see that there's some some people who either have um, supported this sort of thing all along or who have, who have grown wise over the last few years, like, for example, Senator Cotton, um, who I think is probably as close to Jacksonian in the Senate and probably a, um, a, an ambitious presidential candidate in the future. So I think, I think there's something there. It really doesn't matter what officials in the departments think. I mean, it matters because they execute it, they come up with policies. But in the end, you know, what matters is who wins elections and then staffs these uh, so I think it'll be there. We're, we're always now in the Republican Party going to have a, a Trumpian candidate because um, it proved electorally viable, and uh, we'll see how successful it will be, it'll be going forward. Let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk a, a, about Europe, one area where you write and think a lot about. How is how has the Trump administration changed our relationship with Europe? If it has changed our relationship with Europe, in what ways, and how are those? ways manifesting themselves in terms of concrete policy? Well, for one, I think they uh, they believe in deliverables much more so than process. So there's no reason for them out of any ideological affinity to work through the European Union in Brussels, which is sort of a supranational project, if it doesn't deliver specific end goals. Whereas you could say that the Obama administration made an effort to empower of the European Union as a key decision maker uh, on the continent. Um, I, President Trump believes in, in I think, some basic building blocks of, of realist foreign policy. He believes in states, nation states, 
he believes in power. And so he views um, Europe through the lens of power in nation states. And uh, it probably starts with traditional security. So um, they've uh, worked hard to, to put together um, what is called the Enhanced Deter Deterrence Initiative, which is a response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine and annexation of Crimea. Where there's increased troop rotations together with select allies in the Baltic states. Um, President Trump clearly prefers the kind of the plucky nationalism of the Eastern Europeans. He gave an important speech in Warsaw a few years ago that really laid out this Judeo-Christian uh, backbone of the West, which would be a speech that you couldn't imagine President Obama giving. Um, he favors, um, uh, I think, parts of, uh, of Eastern Europe, which was another another feature kind of in play at the Munich Security Conference is how, for example, the Polish foreign minister talks about the transatlantic alliance versus Josef Borrell, the new high commissioner of the European Union, um, who who has a much more skeptical view. So, um, so I think there's that, and then uh, yeah, that's on the foreign and security policy front, really defending the frontiers of Europe, putting in place a strong sort of almost steel curtain so that Europe is defended. And then, uh, and then there is trade, right, which is an area you know more about than I do, Clark. But I'd say there he has a pretty adversarial relationship with the Europeans. Um, and, uh, it, it, you know, I think basically the administration's calculus is that uh, Europe might not love everything we do, but there really is no viable third block in, uh, in global affairs. Europe is going to have to either tether itself to the United States and work with us, or um, it will it will be picked apart by the Chinese. And so um, it's it's been much more aggressive in trying to reset what it used to be an imbalanced relationship, um, be it in trade, be it in security, where it's constantly harping on uh, on the need for individual nation states to pick up their military capabilities, which isn't incorrect. I mean, past administrations have said the same thing. It's just been much more aggressive in kind of arguing for these sorts of things. Let's kind of go in a little bit on, on the economic side there, just a little bit. Um, so Angela Merkel has spent a lot of time courting relationships with China, um, proudly endorsing uh, foreign direct investment um, and, and closer economic ties both ways. If the, I mean, do you really believe that the United States is going to force this choice on on the Europeans? And, and are we confident that the Europeans would take that and, and side with the United States? It seems to me like she is out in, in a way as sort of the titular head of, of the European Union, really bolstering and promoting those ties with, with Beijing and, and China more broadly? I don't think that the U.S. wants to force China or force Europe into a choice between China and the U.S. on trade. But it does intend to force or pressure Europe much more aggressively, or it already is doing so aggressively, on, uh, on on issues where national security and trade intersect, and the most obvious immediate question there is um, is 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 five G and whether or not Huawei builds out kind of the European telecoms uh, infrastructure. So uh, already there, and this is so apparent in Munich, Germany's growing economic dependence on China now is the biggest trading partner for Germany several years running is um, is pushing it into ever closer to sort of a posture of neutrality, and so. Um, in that sense, you could see it over the coming decade or so transitioning into almost a larger version of Switzerland. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to be the case, but you could see uh, you could see that unfolding or developing and, and, and moving in that direction. So um, I, I don't think that the U.S. is going to demand, or at least it's not on the horizon, that Europe decouples from China. But the question is, what what aftershocks does large, intense, growing 
trade relationship between China and Europe mean for uh, for other issues in, in competition? I, I think the, the question, I, th I think that's right, but I think that if the United States tries to do this and force sort of a, a choice on various countries around the world, I mean, I, I know that there are hawks around the president that would love to force this choice. Are you, you know, sort of divvying up the world like we did in, in the Cold War? Uh, I'm just afraid that if we force that choice on countries, and it's not just Europe, but other countries as well, uh, that we wouldn't necessarily love the answer to that, especially countries in the sort of Pacific region that are so dependent on trade with China. Um, and if I'd be interested in your thoughts on the broader framework that, that sort of hawks in the United States want to impart on this relationship with China, uh, sort of that Cold War style mentality. Well, so on, just to pick up on this again, and I hope it doesn't bore you because I've talked about it three or four times now, but on the question of Huawei and 5G, the, the Americans have raised it. They've really articulated it and put it into the minds of the Europeans. But the European response is not to choose a transatlantic solution. It's really increasingly moving to, can we buff up Nokia and Ericsson as an alternative to China? Because we recognize there's a security issue but we also want to develop an independent capability and not be tied to the Americans on everything. So that's the answer on 5G. More, more broadly, um, I, I don't think that, um, that the Europeans are interested in decoupling from, 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 from China at all. The security problems of the South China Sea, the security competition and the political and economic competition that the U.S. is engaging with, with China and, say, Southeast Asia, those are, not, those are places very far away from... From, from Europe. So it's not quite the same for two reasons from the Cold War. First, uh, the, the the major military confrontation is not over Berlin, right, which kind of lowers the leverage that, say, um, the U.S. has over Europe to toe to, to the line. And secondly, the economies are fundamentally different. And even in America, and close colleagues of mine um, and people in Washington who have a very uh, skeptical view of China realize that decoupling altogether would be a huge economic blow to the U.S. And so, uh, you know, it's really difficult because we're living in an era of globalization. And how do you defend liberal open democracies in an era of globalization uh, when China is using a lot of the openness against us? Whereas in the Cold War, it right. was really two separate systems competing in two separate areas. And so that's that poses a whole, a whole different challenge. So, Peter, I understand that one of your other areas besides uh, focuses on Europe is also the Middle East. And I want to talk a little bit about that because um, and, and, and maybe bring it back to this context of President Trump's Jacksonian approach. It's it's interesting to me that it seems that Donald Trump would have a very different approach than, say, Barack Obama when it comes to foreign policy and even very different than, say, uh, George W. Bush, George H. W. Bush, either one. Um, but if I'm looking at what's happening in the Middle East and Central Asia, um, this is, you know, without me actually having studied how many troops are stationed where, it doesn't seem like we are um, in any fewer conflicts than we were in the past, but it also doesn't seem like we have actually initiated any more con uh, conflicts. And I'm not sure if we have any more or less troops on the ground in the Middle East and Central Asia. Is that a surprise? And is there more going on that's different, truly sort of day to day besides, say, the 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 big splashes of the, the Suleimani uh, 
killing. Is there really much happening on the ground that's different under uh, President Trump in the Middle East and Central Asia than in prior administrations? Well, on the concrete question of troops, the old Churchillian saying, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. It's one thing to announce that you want to pull out of a region of the world, but um, it's very difficult to actually execute that without um, without putting major interests at risk. So um, I think the, the reason why President Trump thus far has been comfortable with, say, the training mission in Iraq um, and, um, and uh, is because most of our troop presence is not engaged in active conflict. And to the extent it is, be it the counter-ISIS campaign in particular, that's very Jacksonian, right? Because ISIS is, uh, you know, blowing up European capitals, killing Americans. And so uh, it's very Jacksonian not only to respond, but to really respond ferociously. So the air campaign against ISIS in Syria and Iraq was brutal, even more brutal than uh, than the strikes that President Obama ordered. So on the surface, those look the same, but, you know, I think they're, they're slightly different because President Trump really unleashed um, unleashed the American military um, when he took office to go after ISIS in a way that we hadn't seen um, before that. The big difference, I think, on the ground, again, getting back to who he is and how he thinks, is that um, he agrees with President Obama that the U.S. should pull out of um, the Middle East a bit. Um, he, he does think, although his critique might be a little bit different than President Obama's, that uh, that we shouldn't be there. So, uh, I mean, this is putting it very crudely, but if, but if President Obama thought that, that, that the world was too good for America, President Trump might think that the U.S. is too good uh, for the world. And so for very different reasons, maybe they... Uh, they, they both ordered a pullout. But the, the question then is both both recognize that there would be a vacuum and that we're still the superpower and the ordering power in the Middle East. So President Obama's answer for the vacuum was this new kind of condominium of powers that put at its center elevating Iran. And the JCPOA, which is the Iran nuclear deal, was going to be the means by which he brought all the different players together and then they were going to solve problems like terrorism, et cetera, et cetera. President Trump looked at that and said that was incredibly naive. You basically uh, handcuffed um, your ability to go after Iran and the region, which used the nuclear program as a way to then uh, extend its reach across Syria, Lebanon, uh, Yemen, uh, Iraq. There's a saying that uh, the Iranians are the most powerful uh, player in several Arab capitals, Iraq, Yemen, Syria, Lebanon. So um, so he said, look, we're still going to pull back, but instead of instead of um, uh, the JCPOA, we're going to lean on America's traditional um, allies. And the, the, the big ones, of course, being Saudi Arabia and Israel. And so you've seen a, a very pro-Israeli and, um, uh, and pro-Saudi uh, foreign policy that has been uh, embracing them much more so than uh, the Obama administration, which had very difficult relations with both the Saudis and uh, the Israelis. And you could add the Turks to that, too. By the end, President Obama, who in his first term said that President Erdogan was one of his closest world leaders, one he talked to the most, was disillusioned by the Turks. And President Trump has tried to work through and with uh, Turkey. So you could say that those are the three big state actors in the Middle East. There are others, too, but, you know, like the United Arab Emirates um, but they yeah, and the Jordanians who are close allies, but they don't have the ability to project power and to help establish a new regional order. Of course, Egypt is a longstanding ally, but... It's completely fighting with itself, its economies and the gutter. It's just kind of like a buoy trying to stay afloat. So I'd say that um, working through those three, trying to forge common positions and then um, and then and then supporting them in the region is kind of the the general architecture of a of a Trump foreign policy for the Middle East. 
let me ask you this what whether it's middle east or elsewhere in the world um what's sort of your broad assessment of uh trump foreign policy uh, what have been the the biz- biggest successes and maybe what are the biggest surprises or or uh, if you prefer, you know, what have been the biggest uh, shortcomings uh, of Trump foreign policy? I guess I'd start with the shortcomings. The shortcoming would be that um, if you're going to divide the world into, uh, well, let's just let's just put it this way. I, I can take the same approach and give you both the positives and negatives to it. The, the approach being the way he uh, he um, talks to uh, to and about some of our closest partners at time. The shortcoming is if you're going to divide the world into problematic actors like Iran and uh, and positive actors like our traditional allies, then um, then I think it's important to have clarity in your language so that people can differentiate between how you think about, say, Kim Jong Un and uh, you know Prime Minister Abe. So I, I think that dis- disruption isn't always uh, healthy in international relations. On the other hand, you could say that he thinks the basic distribution of responsibilities and power and assignments in the world has been unfair to the U.S. And past presidents have tried for diplomatic maneuvers to get some of our partners to step up. And so by uh, by by really um, anchoring aggressively, by by making them uh, uh, uncomfortable, trying to point to their to their to their wrongdoings, that's a way to kind of shake the tree and to get get progress on things. I read a piece recently, I don't remember where, but it had this line, it was, I think a, maybe it was a profile of Jared Kushner, where there's this line adapted from the business world that, that's, that he uses, something like, you're, you're posturing until you're at a deal. And, uh, and I think that's, that's probably President Trump. I mean, he's, he's posturing, 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 anchoring aggressively, admitting no weakness, and then the deal is cut, and then the deal is sold as a great success. I think that's kind of a stylistic marker of his. You know, he's now pivoting into re-election. I, I think he's opened a ton of files from negotiations with China to um, to the USMCA, the Mexico-Canada-US free trade agreement, to pushing for trade deals elsewhere, to pushing for uh, more burden sharing. And, you know, he hasn't been able to land all of these, so I don't think he's going to open up um, more issues. But um, he's now pivoting away from the from 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 that to you know running on the economy um, and focusing on you know what what kind of I think he thinks matters to the voters the most. If you had to project out, assuming he gets reelected or or uh, you know the Democratic nominee wins in twenty twenty wins later this year, what challenges do you think we face over the next four to five years geopolitically and, and sort of? strategically where where are we in you know 2025 that's a great question i I do think you'll have a a huge obviously injection of political capital and so a lot of these challenges that he identifies which at this point you know like the europeans just want to get to november on some issues where they don't want to make sacrifices or concessions the chinese presumably have no interest in cutting a phase two deal um, unless they think it's going to be Senator Sanders, who on trade is, um, you know, more protectionist than uh, virtually anyone in the Trump administration. So um, he'll he'll have an injection of political capital to push on this stuff, um, and then I guess we'll run a grand experiment on how much his philosophy of the world is correct, which is that power matters most, that um, that we are a liberal democracy that exercises power, and so. Uh, uh, the Europeans, the Japanese, some of our traditional partners will recognize 
that um, will recognize that um, uh, that life is better with the Americans than without them, and that some of these rhetorical asides uh, really aren't that meaningful. They really don't matter. Um, they, they really don't matter all that much. And uh, and and so I think that that'll be that'll be the next, I suppose, four or five years. The organizations that will suffer the most um, are probably those that deal most with global governance, because President Trump has. Um, as maybe we'd get there anyway ourselves, and I think it's probably an apt description of the world, but he's really articulated this geopolitical competition theme, and it's tough to layer global governance on top of geopolitical competition. It just just doesn't work that well. So, um, uh, yeah, I think the heyday of the United Nations is probably gone. It'll be important on some issues, but I can't imagine a UN Security Council resolution on a meaningful question of war and peace is going to be passed and... Uh, and be enforced in the next several years. You work on this more than I, but I don't. I don't think that um, I think the director general of the WTO probably has some sleepless nights. So um, I think those are probably the organizations that suffer most. Question is, if there is a Democrat from ranging from Joe Biden to Mike Bloomberg, I guess he's a Democrat to Bernie Sanders. What do those organizations look like? It might not be all that different, but yeah, that's something to consider. Sure. So as we mentioned at the beginning, uh, Peter, you worked for President George W. Bush. Your office was right next door to his. Um, what kind of can you can you share some good stories so that listeners could get a sense of who he is as a man? I think a lot of people have conceptions about him from, uh, you know, what you see on, on TV and, and what you read about him. But but what is he like as a, as a human and sort of what are some good, interesting, funny, maybe stories about about who he, you know him to be? Well, I think all these people to kind of reach that level of politics have one or two qualities that are really impressive. And he's just an incredibly charm. He's first of all, he's a really cool dude. I mean, he's just a fun person to be around. Uh, but he's also very charming and can kind of win you over. Uh, his biggest skill by far, and this is something where I was like amazed multiple times, is just his ability to kind of see around political corners. And so uh, there'd be invitations that come in as they often do in the post-presidency to speak at this or that organization. And I would look at them and say, oh, I think this is actually a great opportunity. And he would say, no, it's not because of you know X, Y, Z. And when he articulated it, you'd be like, oh yeah, there is a political liability there. There is a problem because he did not want to, he did not want to step on the toes of um, President Obama. And so uh, he would do some things, and I, I was always just amazed at his ability to kind of read, um, read the public, and uh, and read uh, read where things go. There are a couple of times where his political instincts probably failed him a bit. Um, I worked in the Bush White House. I can't say I had a real relationship with him there, but um, uh, but I developed one in the post presidency. I'd say Hurricane Katrina is probably one time where he, where where his where his political instincts weren't, weren't as sharp as uh, as otherwise. But I, I'd say he was just incredibly impressive on um, on that front i also think that he is he is much less of an ideologue than people think he has a worldview but he doesn't put things to sort of a dogmatic blender and uh -huh. so um you know i mean he he like look at issues like no child behind i mean he really i think admired uh what senator kennedy did there together with then congressman boehner and that's uh that's uh that was a very polarized era but i don't think it was as polarized as we are today and uh and back then, you would still have Republican members 
who are more liberal than the most conservative Democrat and Democratic members who are more conservative than the most liberal Republican. Today, it's, there's kind of a leapfrogging of purity and it's hard to find um, those crossover elements. So I, I don't think he's as ideological as people think. I think he's much more charming than people think. I think he is incredibly instinctual. And, uh, and of course, you know, I think he's probably a lot smarter than people think. I mean, he has total command of, of issues that, that, um, that, you know, if you watch, just watch the Saturday Night Live Will Ferrell caricature, you'd, you'd be surprised. Um, you'd be surprised that. So, uh, yeah, great guy and, uh, grateful that I had the chance to work with him. Good. Uh, all right. Last question. So you, you worked for president George W. Bush. You see today's, uh, sort of Donald Trump era Republican party. What's your assessment of where the Republican party is today versus where it was as late as say 2015, right? It seems to me that it's in a dramatically different place. And sort of what are the fissures that, that led us there and, and where sort of what do you see as the, the fissures and how do we get to, to that point? Well, I think that parties go through this sort of thing periodically. And generally, it's presidents who um, pick up the mantle and drive it in one direction or another or candidates who who pick up on trends. And then that, as a return, propels them to high office. So, for example, everyone always says Barry Goldwater in the 60s laid the seeds for Ronald Reagan in 1980. But, um, you know, if Richard Nixon doesn't go down with Watergate, do we ever get Governor Reagan becoming President Reagan? I don't know. I, I wonder because um, Nixonianism was a very different form of kind of Rockefeller Republicanism than uh, than the Barry Goldwater version. And so um, so I think, uh, I, you know, parties change and, um, and, and, and there are a lot of kind of ebbs and flows. Of course, I guess Nixon has some lessons for Trump because the question is how politically successful he will be probably will determine in part the future of the party. But I'd say that I'd say that the Reaganite consensus from 80 until um, until uh, until the end of the Bush administration um, uh, was there. And that basically was a was a consensus around expanding the frontiers of freedom. Uh, after the Bush administration, you know, we had uh, we had the Tea Party, which uh, I watched an interview recently with John Boehner. It's like, you know, we started our process there, which is still ongoing in the Republican Party. And um, and that was in part a backlash to 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 the Obama uh, um, administration. But you could already see there part of what dominates today's Republican Party, which is um, you could however you want to sell it. I just put this analytically. It's not a normative comment, but kind of a rebalancing from freedom towards um, towards more structure protection um, uh, towards uh, management uh, of things like globalization. And so. Uh, that's, I think, where the party is in part. But, you know, uh, we're such a big party. We're a coalition. Um, it's a first-past-the-post system. So you have anything from the Chamber of Commerce, which has a different view of uh, economics than Peter Navarro. Um, and in foreign policy, you have everything from um, from from uh, Tom Cotton to, um, you know, to say, uh, to say, um, uh, Senator Portman. I, I, it's, it's just very different. So Mitch McConnell and George W. Or, and uh, Donald Trump are in a bit of a coalition government, I would say, and uh, that's kind of the Republican Party today. I, I think that's. I think that's helpful. You're you're an astute observer of the Republican Party uh, and, and where it is today. Um, by the way, this is a question that like the rest of the world is really curious about. I mean, Europeans, when you work with them, you have to know more about your own party than European politics because they're constantly trying to figure out. Where the Democrats heading? Where the Republicans heading? It, there's definitely a sense that we're in a period of change. Uh -huh. Just a question of how does how does that process unfold and where does it lead to? Great. 
Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. I, I think, I th and, and you know, to be transparent about this, you know, when we were in, when Peter and I were in uh, Switzerland last year, right about this time, um, I, I think the the diplomats that we talked with from various countries and the WTO, I think they're they're asking this exact question, and it's something that you know. I live and work in Washington, D.C., and it's something that I struggle to answer, um, trying to just generally observe the, the broader trends within both parties and, and sort of where each is heading. So I, I think it is really a, a fundamental question going on right now that, that a lot of people are asking. So makes sense. All right. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urbane Cowboys.